Hi, I'm Emery Parker. I'm Brooks Brunson. I'm Kelly Poe. We're here each week to discuss the forces shaping the Palmetto State and provide the context that gives it meaning. This is Understand South Carolina. Schools in South Carolina are profoundly segregated, consistently ranked among the worst in the country, and are hemorrhaging teachers. A five-part investigation by the Post and Courier late last year found that the state's consistently failing schools are mired in centuries of inequality and inaction, and are a major threat to future economic prosperity. After the series, called Minimally Adequate, was published, we started to see movement on comprehensive statewide education reform. We started to see movement on comprehensive statewide education reform for the first time in years. But the legislative session has come and gone without much signed into law. Here to take us through the investigation and what happens now is Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Jennifer Barry Haas. Welcome to the show, Jen. It's great to be here. So, Jen, why did you call the series Minimally Adequate? The title, Minimally Adequate, comes from a definition that the state Supreme Court came up with that describes the benchmark that the state has given itself in the Constitution for what it must provide students in public education settings. So it literally says, like, in the Constitution, our education has to be minimally adequate? That is the state Supreme Court's interpretation of the language in the, in the Constitution. Ah, yeah, gotcha. so, so, yeah, to be clear, the word is not in the Constitution. In the state, okay. It's in a Supreme Court decision. That's right. Okay. State Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So from the very beginning, we're not exactly aiming high? No, no, no. I think that the word minimally would definitely give you that sense. This story was a huge undertaking. How many months did you guys spend on it? And what made you say, we need to do this now? Well, the idea for it was based on the fact that there has been a lot of coverage of the fact that South Carolina schools are often ranking toward the bottom of pretty much every list that there is out there uh, and had ranked at the bottom of a list. But what were the factors that were driving that? Everybody knows that South Carolina schools have struggled. That in and of itself isn't isn't news to anybody. But we thought what we could bring was some sort of depth to the conversation that would loop in things like the history of the state, uh, legislative inaction, funding inequities, a whole variety of issues that if presented in one series could really hit people over the head with the scope of the problem and some of the factors that have led up to it. The history of the state was one issue that just really rose in our minds because I think a lot of people who live here, uh, A, didn't grow up here and aren't from here, don't know that history, uh, or B, just don't realize it. So what was the most surprising thing you found during your reporting? I think it was that when I, I took on the part that has to do with the history of the state in particular, and one thing that really interested me was that the year 1970 is when most districts in South Carolina desegregated. Well, that is the year before I was born. So when we think of desegregation, we tend to think of something that happened a long time ago, um, maybe in the 50s or 60s. You know, Brown versus Board of Education came down in 1954. Uh, Charleston County Schools integrated in the 60s. But the reality is that it was only under a court order in 1970 that most districts desegregated. So that is pretty recent history, and that surprised me. I, I always had it in my mind that most districts in South Carolina tackled that in the 60s, but in fact, it's it's much more recent. You know, you're absolutely right that um, that is pretty recent. It may be before I was born, but my parents, I'm in my late 20s, and my parents remember their schools being desegregated, which is just wild to me in, there in North Carolina. And I think what people who don't experience that might not realize is that there's there's kind of like a hangover from that history, right? Just because schools are, just because you suddenly have access to schools 
um, that are integrated doesn't mean that that history of segregation, you don't have to still live with that and suffer those consequences. Well, most people don't think about the fact that uh, when desegregation occurred, most of the white parents, especially out in some rural areas, um, set up private schools called segregation academies, uh, and that those private schools in many areas still exist. So you still have the remnants of the system that was in place there, and that you have black students in one school, usually the public school system, and you have white students in another system, the private school system. Or you look in a place like Charleston County where you have largely segregated schools due to school choice and other factors, um, private schools being one, but also the fact that our magnet schools tend to be majority white by far. And then you have local public schools on the peninsula, North Charleston in particular, that are predominantly black. So you still have the vestiges of that system. It's just manifested itself in a different way. It's not mandated by law that the schools be segregated, but they are. Along that same line, can you tell me a little bit about the education that the average black student in South Carolina gets and how that sort of differs from the prototypical white student? And these are generalizations, obviously, because there are exceptions everywhere. But if you were to look at, for instance, test scores, which obviously are just one reflection of a student's experience in school, but they are an important one. If you look at the state standardized tests that third graders take, and third grade is a grade where reading skills are are just critical because it's the point where students transition from learning to read to reading to learn. So if you cannot read on grade level by third grade, you're at a huge disadvantage. And in South Carolina, 59% of white students meet or exceed the third grade um, standards for English language arts, but only 26.9% of black students do. So that's half. So I think that's one example of what you can see all across the board. You can see that in ACT scores. You can see that in AP scores. You can see that in all kinds of ways that we measure student progress. Well, to me, that's just unacceptable. How do you, how do you approach public education where you have such a huge disparity? Uh, and, and as I said, you see the same thing across the board in many standardized tests. Just anecdotally, I was at a school in one of the rural communities, and I was sitting in on an AP U.S. government class. And the class was learning about the order of succession. Uh, so if the president dies, you know, the vice president comes into office. And I thought it was interesting. I went home and asked my son, who then was in eighth grade, had he learned about this? And he goes to um, a top-notch magnet school. And he said, yeah, we learned that, you know, some odd years ago. And it just really hit home to me because I thought, why is it that a student who lives in one area has such a huge, there's just such a huge difference? Uh, and that was really the, the motivation behind Minimally Adequate. We wanted people to understand that those enormous disparities exist, and that's just not fair to students who live in different areas. Uh, that due to where you're born, your education, uh, your access to education and to a quality teacher is so different. So, yeah, I mean, that is something that, you know, when when you guys first started reporting on this and um, I sat in on a few of those meetings at the beginning, one thing that we did was just look at the map of the districts in South Carolina, right? And you look at the coast and it's like these huge uh, counties that are pretty much just one district each. And they're also like fairly populated counties. I mean, Charleston County is maybe one of the most populated uh, counties in the state. But then you look west a little um, towards the area along 95 that is... Um, 
become known as the corridor of shame. And it's like they're just broken up into like they're smaller counties originally and they're broken up into three or four school districts. I mean, can you speak to a little bit about, you know, did race play a role in those district divides and why? Well, originally, as you mentioned, in counties, there were dozens and dozens of school districts. And it's for the reason you're talking about. It was partly to keep students of different races apart. But what's happened is that they still do that in some ways. Uh, and, and Molly Spearman, the state superintendent, has tried to address this, and um, it, we're moving toward consolidating some of those districts. But, for instance, in Clarendon County, um, Clarendon County is the county where Briggs versus Elliott, one of the five cases that came to make up Brown versus Board of Education, is from. And in Clarendon County, you have three school districts, very small, all of them, and very different racial makeup, so that Clarendon 3 is a much more white school district than Clarendon 1, for instance. Clarendon 2 is a little bit more diverse. But what those, um, what those divides mean is that students you know, are, are less likely to go to school with somebody of a different race. The school districts that are very, very small are at a disadvantage as far as um, funding goes. It's also just more expensive to run those districts. So if you have a little tiny district, that district still has to have a superintendent and a board and an assistant superintendent. When you have very small schools, they still have to have a principal and a you know a librarian and a school nurse and whatnot. And so they become much more expensive to run and less of that money then makes it to the classroom. Uh, so the state has really tried to take a look at what will um, what are some of the benefits of consolidating because on the other hand, People in communities love their schools. They don't want to lose their schools to a larger system. They don't want to lose their the character of the school and the close-knit nature of the people in the school. Um, but there are some real disadvantages of being um, very small. And so that's one thing that the state is looking at. Um, you know, it's not an, something that's going to fix education tomorrow, but it is one area that the state is trying to make some progress in. So, Brooks, it's a— uh... Interesting that you bring up mapping, because um, this is something I was I was thinking about. I uh, worked on this project a little bit with the the team, and uh, sort of the part of it that I, I did work on was um, we obtained some data that had to do there that showed basically the level of poverty in each district, the ACT score in each district, and then this other measure that's called intense segregation, which is obviously a measure of how segregated you know the district itself actually is. And so we we actually have a, an interactive map. You can go, if you like Google minimally adequate posting courier, find it. What I think is really interesting about this map, though, is that, you know, I make a lot of maps for the paper. And we, what you see is there's a really, really clear line basically going through the state, through kind of the middle of the state, where poverty is a lot higher and where ACT scores are a lot worse. You see that over and over again, and it almost doesn't matter like what you're mapping. It could be, the, in this case, we're talking about school data, but it could be like poverty. It could be access to, uh, you know, any anything that you need to to live, you know, a, a good life. And you see this the same pattern over and over again, and it goes all the way back to old. Like the, it's basically the exact same map that the U.S. Army made in 1860. It's like one of the most famous maps. It's one of the uh, first demographic maps ever made, and it just shows where slaves were in the in the country. And it's really, really striking to see that from 1860 to 2019, we still see the exact same pattern. Well, I think what you're seeing is the the manifestation of that um, of something. Here's a good example: 
In the early part of the 1900s, someone put together a map, and I can't recall where I got it, of districts in South Carolina. And it showed state funding for white students and black students. And there was a gap of upward of 20 to 1 in how much money the state was putting towards schools for black students compared to white students. And that gap was enormous along that corridor you're talking about. So if you imagine going back that far, those schools have been underfunded for that long. And so that's just one sliver of that pie, one one way to look at um, the inequitable way that people who live in those communities have been treated. So fast forward today, well, if, from all those generations, from the days when enslaved people made up those communities to the days when they are, you know, 2000, the year 2019, modern communities, so little has changed in terms of those inequities. Yes, we've made progress, no doubt about it. But the fact that if you, to your point, if you look at health disparities, if you look at income disparities, education disparities, um, in the town of Somerton and Clarendon, one that I was mentioning earlier where Briggs versus uh, Elliot's out of, that district has changed remarkably little in terms of, you know, like I said, black students in one school, white students in the other. Um, very tiny school district, very tiny schools. So it makes you wonder how far have we really come. There, there's so much progress to be made in those areas that I hope one of the things that the series did was to raise that awareness so people can understand. Uh, for instance, only a handful of people in Somerton had bachelor's degrees. Well, if you look in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, you know the vast, vast majority of residents there have bachelor's degrees. So the communities and the homes that those kids are growing up in are really different. It's very unequal. Can you explain the term corridor of shame? That came from a documentary um, that Bud Ferrillo put together that really outlined that corridor of predominantly black counties in South Carolina basically straddles I-95 um, that that still struggle on a lot of the, the things that we just talked about. But it comes from his documentary. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of touch back on the uh, segregation academies part um, because, yeah, as you just kind of explained, like one thing that the ser- your series really highlighted was um, that uh, segregation in South Carolina schools is still very real. But um, what's really interesting to me and partially because I actually intended attended one of the schools that was that originally opened as a segregation academy um, is that these schools uh, they're private but they're still largely white and um, I mean in your reporting uh, you wrote that 131 segregation academies opened um, in response to integration um, and that was in the 70s that many of these schools still operate today with names like Calhoun and Robert E. Lee Academy. The mascot for Andrew Jackson Academy is literally a Confederate rebel, mm-hmm. right? right? I mean, that's crazy to me. Um, about 36,000 children, mostly white, abandon public schools for private ones each year. And then on the other end of things, we have one in eight schools in South Carolina are 90% or more minority students, right? And so I went to Hammond in Columbia, which uh, you mentioned in the series. Hammond still today is less than one in 10 black students. Um I believe in my class of 64, we had two black graduates. And, you know, while I got a good education there, you're very much in this bubble. Like, you know, I didn't really understand racial issues at all until I got out of Hammond. 
So can you speak a little bit more yeah, about I mean, what you see? And So how did that affect you as an adult? You go into the workforce right. and you aren't familiar with working with people of different races. And I think that you just lose such a, a rich experience. You know, I grew up part of my life in South Florida, uh, in Miami, where there's a tremendous diversity of people, diversity of races and, and um, nationalities and socioeconomically. You really gain something from that, and you gain something in terms of learning about other people. Um, you gain things in terms of different kinds of friendships that you have to navigate. And I think one of the things that that I worry for my children here in Charleston County is what do you what do you lose when you don't have, or what do you um, lose when you don't have that in terms of your compassion for other people? It, you know, we talk a lot today about things like immigration. Well, I wonder how many people when they talk about People who are here illegally, do they know people like that? What is their experience firsthand in understanding the struggle of that person or understanding where they came from? Um, same thing on, on issues that deal with race. How much have we interacted with somebody of a different race? Have we had somebody over for dinner or gone out for a beer with somebody of a different race? That you um, just know them as people. And I think uh, one of the things that I covered here uh, was the Emanuel church shooting. And it always struck me that Dylan Roof came up with his racist views mostly online in the isolation of his bedroom. So I always wonder, well, if he'd gone out into the world more and he knew more African-Americans, would that have played a role? Um, for all of us, we come up with stereotypes often based on the fact that we're living in a silo. We don't know the people who are X, Y, and Z or whatever it is we're making a judgment about. and so. The foundation of that is in the school. That you learn that stuff as children, right? You learn uh, how to deal with people who are different from you and appreciate those differences mostly as kids. So if our kids don't go to school together, my kids don't know children of other races, I may not meet their parents. A lot of the parents I know are, are parents of kids my kids have been friends with or played on a sports team with. So what do we lose when we don't have that interaction with each other? And that, to me, is, you know, if you don't care anything at all about public schools, surely you care about the fact that as a state, we need to be able to understand where each other are coming from and appreciate our history and be able to heal some of those wounds, which I feel like we just have been unable to do. And this, and the segregation of the schools to me is just exacerbating that. So, okay, so we've talked a lot now about the the history and um, the background of, of education inequality in the state, but does that, does that mean that that's the only problem that we're facing. Like, what what about how we're just running our schools, or, or like the problems that teachers face, or resources? Like, are, are we doing okay mm -hmm. on those, and we just have this historic problem, or or is it bigger than that? Right, right. So the so the the historic problem is just kind of how we got here. Right. But the issues regarding teachers are are different now. Obviously, some of that will imp impact teachers, but our huge teacher shortage is is tied to this and that it's very difficult for particularly rural schools, which tend to be uh, mostly minority schools, to get quality teachers. Um, part of it is the pay, part of it's location. Uh, you know, if you're a 20-something-year-old education college graduate and you go out into a rural community um, where you're making very little money, it's very hard to meet other young people, um, there's not a whole lot to do. It's really difficult for those schools that we're talking about in rural communities to attract teachers, but it's also difficult for teachers to stay in the profession because um, they don't make any money, they have tremendous stress coming from many directions. 
The issue of standardized testing and the load that that puts on them is tremendous. Uh, so the teacher shortage is a whole other issue. Um, one issue we haven't mentioned yet is the funding formula. School funding, you know, starting in the early 1990s, the state started underfunding the base student costs. So struggling schools were hit particularly hard with that. Uh, and the funding formula has yet to be addressed. The legislature, uh, legislative leaders have said they'll do that next year. I guess we'll see. It's an mm -hmm. election year for the entire House. So we'll see if they will tackle it in a year when they're facing re-election. But they've said that they're going to. So we'll see. So right after this series came out, um, I think a lot of people felt really energized because we started to see legislators have serious conversations about comprehensive education reform. And that hasn't happened in a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, then it... Uh, the, se the session came and went, and we don't have a lot to show for it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened and what things look like going forward? Well, I think a lot of people were encouraged because after the series ran, um, Speaker Jay Lucas came out with a reform bill. Governor McMaster spoke forcefully about the need for education reform, and so did other state legislative leaders. Um, the House passed a bill, um, a fairly a robust bill. It got tied up in the Senate. Um, there was there were a number of questions and concerns raised, particularly by teachers um, and a group called SC for Ed, uh, which mobilized a huge mm -hmm. teacher uh, rally at the State House not long ago. Um, so we'll see if next year those uh, concerns are addressed. Our session uh, runs over two years. This was the first year, so they can pick up where they leave off, and uh, I think a lot of people hope they do. Uh, we'll see if they can have a meeting of the minds. They weren't able to reach that this year. Um, it, it's a complicated problem, but it has been studied and studied and studied to death. And so I think a lot of people are hopeful that they will make some progress next year. But there's no doubt about it that the, that the energy that the session began with, as far as passing something really uh, diminished by the end of this year. What were the teachers unhappy about with the bill? They were unhappy with some concern. They had some people had concerns that they were trying to privatize schools. Um, some people were concerned the bill didn't go far enough. That it didn't address actual issues um, that would improve classrooms. It didn't, for instance, put a cap on class sizes. It does. It does look like the legislature is going to pass a teacher pay increase, uh, which is one thing that they were pushing for. The teachers just felt like the bill didn't go far enough. Yeah, for their needs. Teachers felt like some portions of the bill um, could be harmful, and they definitely felt like it didn't go far enough to address the concerns that they had. And they felt, especially early on, that they were not involved in putting that together. That was one of the key reasons that they came out against it was that they felt like they were not involved and that it didn't reflect the needs and the concerns of teachers. But even if a bill didn't pass, I mean, I think it's really you know impactful and important that the series at least prompted there to be a starting point, right? I mean, you know, the one thing that, you know, I wonder is like, why did it take so long for, I mean, how did we get to such a bad place that before our legislators recognize what's up? Well, I think that, you know, it's one of those things where you know, but you don't put it all together in your head. Um, hopefully the, the, the series being big and broad enough got attention. I feel good about the fact that people were talking a lot more about education than they were before. Certainly the legislature was talking more about it. Um, it was great to see um, so many teachers involved in the process. We hold we held several events around the state, um, bringing together panels of people to talk about these issues, and we had tons of teachers at those. Um, so for sure the conversation is, is much more focused on this. 
question is, you know, where the rubber meets the road, are we able to do something about it? And that's the piece that I think a lot of people are, are leaving this year with the General Assembly frustrated about. Um, there's, you know, there's still time, but we'll see. Well, I think that is a pretty good place to leave it. Brooks, do you feel like you better understand South Carolina? I do. I mean, you know, just the more we talk about these like systemic issues that have been driving this for so long, um, it really puts in the context like things I experienced growing up and like why like I barely knew any people of other races. And um, now it all kind of like makes sense once you add it all together. Um, I think it's really anything the more that we talk, we can talk about it, the better so that the you know, students um, who are currently at these private schools or are currently in um, all white public schools or all black public schools understand, like, here's why you're experiencing things this way and um, that there is hopefully change on the way. Emery, do you feel like you better understand South Carolina? Yeah, I think I do. I, I think, um, yeah, it's it's just really interesting how uh, old problems don't ever really seem to go away, do they? They're always, <laughs> always there. We think we fixed them, but... Turns out, not so much. Kelly, do you think you understand South Carolina better? I do. Seeing how South Carolina's dark history is still so directly tied to some of the issues that it faces today, that's going to stick with me. I'm going to marinate on that for a while. Jen, uh, thank you so much for being here. Where can people follow you online or read more from you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Jen Barry Hawes. Um, follow me on Facebook, Jennifer Barry Hawes. Love to have you there. On June 4th, I hope you will check out my book called Grace Will Lead Us Home about the Emanuel AME church shooting. Love to hear your feedback and have you give it a read. And uh, just before we go, I want to, I know I did this on, in a past episode, but I want to do it again um, and highlight the fact that, Jen, how, how long did, did this story take to put together? This took us about eight months. Um, there are five reporters who worked on it. Um, our education reporter, Shauna Adcox in Columbia and Paul Bowers here in Charleston, were also covering their beats during that time, um, did some amazing work. And Thad Moore, Glenn Smith, and I from our projects team um, worked on it pretty mm-hmm. well full time during most and the, of and, and that's just the, uh, the reporters directly working on it and, and the editors directly working on it. And if you expand that out broadly, like over 20 people at least had, a, had, a, had a hand in, in reporting on this. So this is a really, really big lift. Undoubtedly. And, you know, I have to say it's not every newspaper, especially mid-sized newspaper, uh, who will put the resources into a project like this to try to move the needle in the state. And so uh, I feel like we're really lucky and doing some good journalism and hopefully it will mm-hmm. make a difference. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry if I sorry if I sound like a broken record here. But again, like it, this is this is when you subscribe, this is what your subscription dollars are going to fund is is in-depth local reporting like this. So subscribe please subscribe to the post and courier and to this podcast and to the podcast podcast is free it is podcast is free but we can't do it without the support of subscriptions to the post and courier so absolutely get it today at postandcourier.com slash subscribe All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later. See y'all later.